Good morning, everybody. We've been working our way through First uh, Peter. We're going to continue to to look at that this morning. So it's First Peter, and we're up to chapter three, and it's verse eight to verse twenty. And we read, "Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble." Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is, do, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for this hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. We thank God for his word to us today. Let's just come and let's pray. And Father, again, every time we come to your word, we come ready to confess our own inadequacy, to understand this word, our own inadequacy in terms of applying it and living it out. And so, Father, we come again and ask for the enabling of your spirit we pray that you'll open your word to us, that you'll give us understanding, and that you'll give us hearts that desire above all to be obedient to you, and by our obedience to bring glory to your name. And this we pray now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. During the week, I came across this poem. Uh, actually, I've read it many times before, and I'm sure you have. But I'm just going to share it with you again. And we read, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colours he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful 
in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Now I quote that, I read that because I think it captures really very well the sense of confusion that I believe all of us feel when we're attempting to live righteous lives, when we want to, to live in harmony and we want to live at peace with all people and we've no desire in our hearts to offend or hurt anybody and yet despite it all we find ourselves suffering despite our our righteousness despite our desire to live at peace we find ourselves coming under what we believe to be unwarranted attack now is that a problem for you i think it is for most of us at some time in our life well the passage that we're looking at here deals with this problem the persecution of the righteous. It doesn't answer the question why, because that is hidden in the the spiritual battle that sin has introduced into our world between good and evil, Satan and our God. But what this passage does do is it gives us the answer as to how. How we should respond when we find ourselves in this kind of situation when we find ourselves persecuted despite maybe even because of our righteousness and the answer that Peter gives here I believe is twofold to begin with there is an exhortation an exhortation that is after trying to get the the situation in balance by reminding his people That though this is their experience, yet suffering for doing good is still rare. Verse 13, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Well, Peter then goes on to exhort them that if this is, despite what is said, their experience, they are then first to remember the promise. Remember the promise. But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Blessed, that is, as as we suffer for righteousness' sake. And as our lives are, are truly centered on God, as we are living for him to the best of our ability, then although we may not be taken out of our circumstances, may not be taken out of the storm, yet, In the midst of the storm, as we are God's, we will know a sense of God's presence and of God's pleasure. We will be blessed. A sense of joy, a sense of peace in him, that even in our suffering, perhaps even in our tears, will leave us knowing that still we are blessed in the Lord. Corrie ten Boom Maybe not so many people know her story now, but she's a woman who suffered dreadfully in German concentration camps during the Second World War. And she lost in these camps her her father and her beloved sister. Yet she gloriously came through this, still trusting as she'd gone into those camps in her God. And she says something, I believe, of this kind of experience when she, she writes of her return to her home in Holland after her release. And this is what she says. But I was there 
alone. The two who had lived with me in this house, with whom I'd shared such an unusually harmonious life, were no longer there. I stood leaning against Father's bed, thinking about their present happiness. They were seeing the solution of problems more clearly than I could on earth. They were seeing heavenly colours and hearing heavenly music. I was happy. My joy in their happiness shone through the grief of my loss. I dared to be happy. My life had been given back to me and I would perhaps still have opportunities to help and comfort people. I had been purged and purified and had learned from experience much that I had only superficially believed before. Persecution, darkness, hunger, nakedness, famine and sword, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Christ. So as we suffer, though we are righteous, as we are persecuted, we have to remember the promise. Remember that no matter what, that we are blessed in Christ. That he stands with us and that he will never let us go. We are blessed. But we are exhorted not only to remember the promise, but also to get the right perspective. Get the right perspective. And that is using the preferable trans- trans- translation, I believe, that's found in the, the footnotes of the NIV, NIV. Not to fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Now, now what this means, what this is, is getting at, is that in our minds, in our thinking, we must ensure that it is Jesus Christ who is dominant. And not our circumstances, not our enemies, not what's going on in the world around us. Let me just share with you here something that I came across during the week. To reverence Christ, to set apart Christ as Lord, means really to believe that Christ, not one's human opponents, is truly in control of events. To have such a reverence in your hearts is to maintain continually a deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as reigning Lord and King, who even now has angels, authorities and powers subject to him. You see, it means believing that no matter what we're going through, no matter the seeming injustice of our situation, that no matter what, that God is in control. And that in a way that may well be beyond our understanding and may always be beyond our understanding, He is working His purposes out. Working in us, working through us, working in our circumstances, to bring glory to himself and to develop further that likeness of Jesus Christ in us. I came across a poem a little while ago that was written in a a, a different kind of context. In fact, it was written in the context of one of life's most terrible experiences of suffering. That is the death 
of a child. And I think that this kind of sums up for me the kind of attitude of heart and mind that Peter's looking for here. And this is what it says. Day after day our lives go on, then suddenly life stands still. With the sudden loss of a loved one, though we know that it is God's will. The tears come fast and the hurt is great and the reason we just can't see. Then the Lord takes our hand and we understand that he plans for eternity. So, as we suffer, though we are righteous, we are to remember the promise. We are to remember, though no matter what, that we are blessed in Christ, that what we have in Christ and the presence of Christ can never be taken from us. Also, we are to get the right perspective. And that is a, a vision, an understanding, that no matter what our circumstances here and now might be, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he will work his purposes out. But as well as this, Peter also tells us to recognize the potential. That is, that as we suffer for righteousness, that this gives us tremendous potential for witness. That's why in verse 17, Peter makes the seemingly strange comment, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now you see, from a worldly point of view, that makes no sense. When our main aim in life is our own comfort and well-being, then that statement becomes a nonsense. How can it ever be better to suffer for doing good? I mean, if we suffer for doing evil, then we can maybe understand that. We can maybe perhaps even accept that, but not suffering for doing good. How possibly can that be better? If though, we are seeing things from that different perspective. If it is God's glory and our growth into Christ's likeness that comes first for us, well then, then, this does become understandable. Because wrongful suffering, patiently endured, is one of the most powerful forms of witness. And so Peter tells us, go on from this, verse 15, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. So be ready then, be alert. Alert, that is, to see and to take hold of the opportunities for witness that the Holy Spirit will undoubtedly provide for you if you are living like this. But, he goes on, do this with gentleness and respect. Meaning, make sure that it is the Holy Spirit who is in control. Not only of providing opportunities, but also in control of the way that you present your witness. That is, don't try to overpower people, either with your argument or your personality. Don't think that it's your responsibility to twist their arm into faith. But trust God. Trust the Spirit to do the work that's needed, that gentle, persuasive, all-powerful work that brings conviction. 
However, while that's not your responsibility, it is your responsibility to make sure that your life is in the kind of shape that will provide these opportunities. To make sure that your life, the way you're living, your lifestyle does recommend, does bear witness to the goodness and the holiness and the love of God. Rather than it being something which, to the contrary, actually gives ammunition to the enemies of Christ. Something that denies Christ rather than points his glory and his transforming power. As verse 16 says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter here then tells us, he exhorts us as to how we should respond when we suffer, when we are persecuted, though righteous. He tells us how we should respond, that we we might not be overwhelmed by this experience, but rather that we might bring glory to God and grow through it. Having given us then this exhortation, he then goes on to give us two examples of this teaching, of this principle in action, lived out. The first, I suppose I would describe as the expected but still wonderful. That is the ultimate example of the suffering of the righteous. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 18 he says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Meaning that Jesus suffered harm, even death, But because he remembered, because he trusted, because he surrendered himself to the Father, he was able, through his physical suffering, to bring eternal spiritual gain, bringing us to God. By his death, by the sacrifice of his perfect, sinless life, dealing once and for all with our sin, the sin that separated us. From a holy God. And that's all I want to say about this first example, because I want to rather concentrate our attention on the second example of this principle that we find here in First Peter, which if the first was expected but wonderful, well then this is unusual and controversial. In fact, I remember I was once talking to somebody uh, who, who's known for having a very good Bible knowledge, someone who's a real student of the Bible. I was talking to him about this passage. And they said to me that these are the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. Verse 18 to 20. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now, these verses have been interpreted through the years in some very strange, fanciful, and at times even downright heretical ways. Including that what's been spoken of is that here Christ went down into hell and took on Satan's nature. It's so awful I can barely say it. 
and that after dying on the cross, paying the ultimate penalty, he then went into hell to be tortured by Satan, and it was that which won us freedom from sin. That's actually taught, taught by people who preach on some of the Christian TV stations. But let me just say, it is absolute, unbiblical, heretical nonsense. But let me say that, having looked at this and tried to get to grips with it, and I love doing that kind of thing, well, I've got the temerity to say that with the help of that excellent commentary by the American Bible professor, Wayne Greedham, that I believe I understand these verses. And it does make me wonder sometimes, there are so many incredibly intelligent people in the United States. However, did Donald Trump and George W. Bush get to be president? That amazes me. But then I think, we might have Boris Johnson. We can't afford to laugh, can we? Okay, so what do they mean then? What do they mean? Well, first, I think we have to decide what the identity is of these spirits in prison to whom Christ preached. I mean, are they human spirits in hell or fallen angelic spirits? For both are a possibility and the word that, that here is translated spirit is actually used of both elsewhere in the Bible. However, in every case, the context in which the word is found makes it clear what kind of spirit is meant. Well, what does it say here? That these spirits disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now you see, nowhere in the Bible are angels ever said to have disobeyed during the building of the ark. But Genesis 6, 5-13, clearly there emphasizes the human sin at that time which God caused God to flood the earth in judgment. And it also talks here of God waiting patiently. Well, God's patient waiting for human beings to repent before bringing the judgment of the flood, that is something that the Bible consistently sees, that patience as being part of God's dealing with men. For example, Second Peter, uh, Peter 3 verse 9, where it says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But at the same time, nowhere does the Bible give any hint at all that fallen angels may be given an opportunity to repent. And that's made clear, for example, in, in Jude 6, where it says the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the last day. Well, that answers the question as to who Christ preached to you. The other important questions, though, are when and how did he preach to them? Well, the usual debate is, was it in the period between his death and his resurrection? Was it in that period? Or was it after the ascension? When? I don't believe it was any of these. 
but that this is hidden by and large by the poor way that verse 19 and 20 are translated in most of our major versions. The only one that makes a reasonable stab at it is the New American Standard Bible. For you see, literally, the way that these verses would be better translated is that Christ was made alive by the Spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits now, now in prison. Now, you get that? They weren't in prison, in hell, then, when Christ preached to them. No, they were human beings here on earth during the time of Noah. That's when Christ went and preached to them. When he went and preached and urged them to repent. But, because they disobeyed, because they refused to heed his message, so then now they are spirits in prison, spirits in hell. And you know, when it says Christ went to them in spirit, by the spirit during the days of Noah, well, what I believe that means is that Christ in a special way indwelt Noah and made his appeal to these people through the lips of Noah. And that fits in very well with what the Bible says to us elsewhere about the, the ministry and the experience of the Old Testament prophets. For example, First Peter 10 verse 11. And he says, they're concerning this salvation. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances, and this is it, to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he then predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And you see, all of this fits in. Noah fits in with what we've been trying to say throughout this morning. For you see, Noah suffered for righteousness' sake. He was mocked, he was despised and persecuted by a godless generation. But as he trusted in God, as he trusted in the blessing of God, as he submitted and obeyed God, glorified God, in the midst of that, with all that going on around him, well, ultimately, God came to him in Christ. He delivered him, saved him. He knew the triumph and the victory of God. Now I say to you, if we are ready to do the same, if as we suffer in this world for righteousness' sake, we are ready to remember the promise. Remember that we are blessed in Christ, that God will never let us go. And if we are ready to get that right perspective, ready to trust, ready to hold on to the fact, the truth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that no matter how things might seem, that he is working things out for his glory and our ultimate good. And if we're ready to recognize the potential, to recognize what God can do in us, through us, by us, as in our suffering we give ourselves for him, we seek to live for him, then God will deliver us. God will work in us 
he will work out his victory in our lives again and again. As he did in Jesus, as he did for Noah, God will do it for us. So let's again come to him. Let's come in prayer and trust ourselves once more into his care. Father, we just, we come and Lord, you know that these are great truths, but in our suffering and when we go through hard times, it's not easy all the time to remember these things so clearly. So Lord, help us to get these simple truths really embedded in our hearts that we need to remember the promise that we are blessed. We need to get that right perspective that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we need to hold on to you. We need to trust you. We need to seek to live for you. Father, help us to be your people in the times of suffering as well as in the times of joy. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.